Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Get down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Are you ready to get down with some D&D? I know I am, and I am joined, as I am almost always joined, by the modest, marvelous, and melancholy Mad Wizard Merwin. What is up, Sean? Yeah, a little melancholy today, Chris. I have a little cold, little fever. Uh, if I start ranting incoherently or coughing, uh, that's why. So on our agenda for this day, we are going to do our normal announcements and news type stuff, and then we are going to talk about settings and their importance and where they come from and how to use them and you know stuff like that. And if... Uh, if this is sort of like maybe our, our 101 or intro kind of conversation on campaign settings, maybe we'll get into some deeper topics concerning them in the future. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's hit with the news. What is the what is the first thing up in the news? So I wanted to draw attention to our G Plus community because people post a lot of great stuff there. And a really neat thing that Chris Shorb posted was a link to a fantasy herb and spice name generator. Mm. So we put the link in the show notes. If you uh, just go to that link and click the button, you will get 10 random names of potential herbs and spices. So I, I did it. I clicked, and mine were Ihafrin, Oxenut, Ishader, Phenadanum, something I can't even come close to pronouncing, Tundra Dill, Sorrow paprika, ember bark, wild leaves, and mellow caraway. And I thought, that's really cool. Those are really cool names. They are really cool names. In fact, I uh, I went in there and looked myself, and then I grabbed one of the names, and then I posted up what I thought it would be in the G Plus community. And uh, the one that I came up with, I can't remember the name of it because I'm not looking at the G Plus community right now, but what it did is if you chewed it or, or used it, it would... um. It would make your eyes flash bright white for a, a few minutes, like not even a few minutes, like like just a little while, mm. uh, a very short period of time. But then you would see everything in like after images for like an hour afterwards. Oh. I mean, nothing that affects anything gameplay wise, but you know, that's what would happen if you chewed on that tobacco or got that herb in your system. Yeah. And I just thought this was a really neat thing. If you're a DM or even if you're, you know, just writing something in general, you know, go on there and use that. And I can tell you that the stuff I'm working on now, We'll have these herbs in them because they are a great idea to put into an adventure. They really are. So the second thing is that um, the Monster Monstrous Races product hit platinum bestseller on the DMs Guild in a matter of days. And I saw an article on this popping up not too long ago. Somebody mentioning it on somewhere on social media. I'm like, well, that's cool. Somebody did a uh, what was that? Uh, uh, what was that? That book in third edition that people like so much? Savage Species. Yeah, Savage Species. So, Sean, what's in this document? So this document, according, I didn't read it yet. I just looked at the blurb. It has 228 playable races, which is every creature in the monster manual. Ten templates for player characters using rules like lycanthropy and, and vampirism. Uh, rules for tiny player characters and player races. Some new feats and backgrounds. An, uh, an analysis of the official published published races up to this point with suggestions on how to alter them um, race builder rules for building your own races and then a template builder for building your own templates for player characters. So this seems like a great deal of content. Let's put it that way. Yeah. That's a lot of stuff, man. Wow. 
And the reason I want 28 playable races. Exactly. Now, the reason I wanted to bring this up is, like I said, I have not read this yet, and I don't really plan on getting it or reading it. I want to highlight it for a couple of reasons. The first reason is it hit platinum status, which is over a thousand sales in a very short amount of time, which means that there is definitely a market for this. Um, There's a market for a lot of different things in the hobby. So even though I... I'm not a big fan of products like this. I have not been a fan of any of the official products that have come out that let you play truly weird races. And I'm not talking about kobolds and goblins. I'm talking about playing, you know, stone golems and those sorts of things. Um, Game mechanically wise, I don't like them, even if they are really well done, because it is just too hard to balance those things. And games that use these, that in my experience, tend to get out of hand pretty quickly. Mm. But with that said, you know what? Good for Tyler Kamstra, the author of this. Good for you. Writing is hard. Marketing is hard. You know, getting a platinum bestseller on the DMs Guild is not an easy task. So good work. Uh, if you are into this, if this is something that interests you, your players, your DM, uh, or if you just want to look it over. I strongly suggest getting it because it sounds like there is a lot of material and a lot of grist for your role-playing mill. Can I uh, just talk about this for a second? You absolutely can, Chris. I'm looking at it on the on the on the guild right now. Um, it's just a basic layout, which is fine, no big deal. Like you know, it's just got that basic D and D template layout thing that people are, are more than welcome to use. It's 283 pages long. Mm-hmm. But it's only being sold for $3, which I think we should talk about this in a few minutes when we talk about something else. Yes, let's. So I just want to throw that out there. Like, that seems ridiculous to me that it's only, it's that much content for only three bucks. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Well, uh, what's next, Sean? Uh, next, we've been talking about it and it is finally done. The Kickstarter for the Creature Codex from Cobalt Press. The Creature Codex was a Kickstarter that ended just a few days ago. If you remember the Tome of Beasts from cobalt press which funded about two years ago there were 2300 backers pledging just short of two hundred thousand dollars the creature codex ended with four thousand one hundred and sixty six backers and just shy of a quarter million dollars in pledges to me that shows a cobalt press makes good products and b this game is growing when a product like this you know, outstretches the previous iterations, it means that more and more people are coming to the hobby. I mean, we just have evidence of this all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we talked about it last week. Mm-hmm. And things like this monster book are, you know, selling thousands of copies at this point. Like, it's a, it's good, right? This is good. These are good signs for people who are like you and me who want to make stuff. Yep. And it shows that, you know, people are willing to pay for good quality material. Mm-hmm. Um, anything else we want to talk about concerning this, or are we moving on to the last thing? Let's go on to that last thing. So, uh, Teos Abadia, who said some nice things about us on Twitter today, by the way, uh, at least Misdirected Mark, which down with the Indy is part of Misdirected Mark Productions. So there's that. Uh, he decided to stir up some controversy on Twitter by coming out and saying that the D&D Adventures League should charge significantly higher prices on the DM skilled. Yes, he did. And it led to a very long, uh, complex web of conversations that went on on Twitter and actually are continuing to go on Twitter even now as of this recording, which is probably three or four days later. There's still a lot being talked about. 
Yeah, I read through most of it. Yeah, and this goes back to what you were talking about with charging three bucks for a, you know, three hundred page product on the DMs Guild. Yeah, can we can we talk about that for a second? Like how I would price something like that, or do you want to talk about something else? No, first? no, I want you to talk about that. All right. So, like I said, that that layout is a pretty basic layout. It doesn't look like there's a ton of art or any art in there at all, as far as I could tell. Um, but it's 283 pages of content. In all honesty, it's sort of like an Ashcan book. Now, for those of you out there who are not familiar with what an Ashcan means, an Ashcan is sort of a uh, like a precursor to actually putting out a full game. It's got some of the rules in there, things that you can use for a brief period of time. Like it, it, it's not a whole thing. Now, this is a whole thing, right? Like all of the content is there. It's just not laid out in any in any way that we are accustomed to with art and whatnot. So, really, all it is is the words. Now. I'm not really sure how much effort or how many words he had to put into that thing. If I'm going to do the math really quick and dirty in my head. Uh, and it's also game design, which game design takes longer than just writing prose. Uh, 250, 283 times what? 250 words a thing. What is that? That's for, it's like 40,000 words or something like that. Yeah. I would say more than the 50,000. Yeah. 50,000 words or more 50,000 words. Yeah. So 50,000 words. If at the, like lowest rate that I that I feel comfortable with saying for for role playing game writers getting paid like at, at four cents a word that's uh that you should you should have been getting paid uh what is it about two thousand dollars something like that so if he doesn't make two thousand bucks off that book and he did the layout which you know rudimentary layout that's fine um then he got underpaid for what he did yep so like. If he doesn't make three grand off this product, he didn't actually get paid what it was worth to put it together, in my opinion. I completely agree. Okay. So he sold it for three bucks. I mean, this is in the format that it's at right now. I would have at least put it out for, you know, $4.99, maybe $6.99, like somewhere in there. Like that seemed, I mean, and even that's kind of low. Mm. Uh, but like, that's a lot of page count. <laughs> that's a lot of words. That's a lot of effort. Now, this is just a passion project for some people. I get it, right? Like, mm -hmm. you just want to get your thing out there, get people looking at it. But uh, what Teos is saying is accurate. Like, mm -hmm. the, the AL stuff, uh, do you want to go into the AL stuff and what he said about it? Because I could, I could transition into that. But I just wanted to point that out. Like, that's how much words it was. That's how much money um, on the low end mm -hmm. for writing it should be worth. And by the way, like, game design takes longer than actual writing, like writing prose, like yep. writing mechanics and things like that takes a lot longer to put together than writing prose. Plus not even counting like playtesting and all that good stuff. Yeah. I'm going to go super high level here and, and go, you know, 1000 foot view of this. Sure. As you just said, this game design, adventure writing rules design, you know, not just RPGs, but just game design in general is is a lot of hard work and it's cool when people want to do it as a hobby and just want to get something up and and get some feedback on it understand that completely but until we make it an effort as an industry whether we are developers designers editors artists or just fans or just consumers until we decide to become a big boy industry like the other entertainment industries we are always going to be stuck at this level of somebody puts up something for a buck 50 when they even if they were making minimum wage should be charging ten dollars for so until we as content creators decide to value our work at what it should be valued 
and consumers value the work for what they are getting out of it, which is usually many, many more hours of entertainment than a typical movie or TV show or album, then we're always just going to be, you know, the third rate industry that we kind of are. And I don't mean third rate in the sense of not valuable. I mean, third rate in the sense that, you know, behind other modes of entertainment that are out there. So Mm -hmm. what I will do now and continue to do probably for the rest of my life is, you know, call on creators to value your work, call on consumers to not just assume because something's up on the DMs Guild for $2 that every product out there should be up on the DMs Guild for $2. Um, Think about how much time people put into things, even if you are not a creator. Think about how much certain amounts of work are worth and and just you know ruminate on that before you make judgments or spout out ideas about how much something should be worth let, let, let's start with that i'm sure we will talk about it more in, in the coming weeks absolutely and uh, i think that's a good place to leave that for now but uh thanks taylor so i think what you said is worth discussing and, and talking about yep there's a link to his tweet uh, in our show notes so you can go right there and then continue with the conversation if you so choose. There's a um, conversation that I would love to have in the future, just real quick uh, about how since Adventures League seems to be the thing that uh, sets the prices in a lot of ways for everything that gets put on the DMs Guild, how um, maybe those prices should be a little bit higher. And because if those prices go a little bit higher, it'd be nice if we could have a, if, if there was a little bit more money funneled into those products to make them more presentable and more usable for things other than just AL. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Kind of like how the adept stuff went. Like I really liked those adept products that ended up being AL legal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause they all had like layout and maps and things like that in them. It was, they were, they were higher, higher quality productions uh, than your typical AL. Guys like rich, rich Lescu flair took the time to really make them look like the wizards products. Mm -hmm. All right. uh, Let's move on. Here's an ad for the ghosts of whimsical splendor. So Waterdeep's beloved opera diva has gone missing and it appears to be more than only a passing concern. With wealthy lords breathing down the city watch's neck, they must quickly find her so that the show can go on. But something dark is hidden within the deep recesses of the whimsical splendor opera house and that darkness has taken the city starlet. Can the darkness be banished and can she be saved in time? This is a short four-hour adventure for characters at levels one through two. It's written by Christopher Gray, and you can pick it up on the DMs Guild while I'll have a link in the show notes. And you'll probably see a tweet floating around here and there about uh, about this too, and maybe in a couple other spaces. Um, Sean, you fan of the opera fan? I am. I mean, this is obviously an adventure inspired by the Phantom mm-hmm. of the Opera. Yeah, I always love to look at those adventures that that take their uh, take their root from from something famous and see how it can be done in in D anD. d Mm-hmm. Uh, the layout's pretty solid. There's a bunch of, uh, of of art inside of this product. The maps are really nicely done. I, uh, If you want something that's a little bit higher quality for levels one through two and has an opera house in it, which who doesn't love an adventure with an opera house, I would suggest going and checking it out and picking it up. All right, Sean, let's get on to our main topic. We're talking about settings. So would you lead us into this setting? Yeah, let's, let's talk for a minute. What are settings? Why are they important to D&D? What elements make the setting important and vital to your D&D game or your campaign? And the reason that we even brought this topic up was there was a very interesting article on EN World by uh, Michael Tresca, who goes by Talion. He is a longtime reviewer and uh, writer, column writer 
uh, for Ian World. And what he did was he looked at the Forgotten Realms over the years and how it has changed based on the rules changes from edition to edition. And what it made me start thinking about was, you know, how important is setting in in your campaign as opposed to how important is it based on the specific granular rule set that the setting supports? And so since we are also working on different projects, Chris and I, including one setting that's going to be coming out, you know, in the, in the distant future, mm-hmm. um, I really wanted to delve into this a little bit. Did you have anything to say about the, uh, just the intro topic in general? I really enjoyed the, um, the article. Can we, can we talk a little bit about the article for a second and how important setting actually is to people? Oh yeah. So it was talking about Forgotten Realms and, and really the, like why Sean already mentioned how like rules changes and whatnot affect that stuff. But the Forgotten Realms like has been highly influenced, especially by, uh, I mean, it's Ed Greenwood originally, his setting, his home game. And then uh, Bob Salvatore, who wrote all those Drist books, there's tons of material that is based in the Forgotten Realms on those particular books. Sure. So that is kind of a like an important starting point for this conversation because when they transitioned from third to fourth edition, they jumped the timeline forward a hundred years and had the spell plague. And they didn't talk to Greenwood or Salvatore about that at all. They just did it. Mm-hmm. They're like, this is what we're doing. So they were both rather disgruntled by that. Ed Greenwood was very sad in fact. And you know, <laughs> I mean, Bob Salvatore and his Drist characters, like most of them are human. Mm-hmm. So like a hundred years in the future, they're mm-hmm. all dead. Right. As soon as that happened, they're like, this is not going to go well. Like they did not think it was going to go. And they were correct. Like they they prognosticated that correctly. So they started planning on a way on ways to fix the setting that is the Forgotten Realms when the next edition of the game came out, which is why in fifth edition D&D, it looks a lot like third edition, second edition D&D Forgotten Realms. So they did a really good job of planning that out and then figure and being like, okay, folks, this is how we fix the realms. And yep. they fixed the the, realms. Another interesting so, uh point that that mike brings up is when they switched from first to second edition they kind of wanted to sanitize the game a bit make it a little less grim getting rid of things like named demons and devils as well as getting rid of assassins and kind of darker player characters to deal with the satanic panic and other complaints about the game from the radical right so uh, mm-hmm. they had the Time of Troubles, which made the gods mortal, and many gods died, including Baal, who was the god of assassins. So when the god of assassins died, all assassins died. <laughs> Dead. Removing assassins from second edition. And that was the meta reason why there were no more assassins. So... Think about that just in terms of the outrage you would have these days if some television show or, you know, some large bit of IP was changed that dramatically using that reason, uh, the Internet would burn down. But this was done, you know, before the Internet. And it's just that was the behind the scenes reason. And so, you know, looking at little things like that or big things, depending on your uh your idea of, of how that was handled, you know, is very, really interesting to me. So that's another thing, another reason to go read Mike's article. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a fascinating read. It's really cool stuff. 
So do you want to talk about some D&D settings now and sort of like why they're important and what kind yeah, of makes let's, them Let's them? go through them real quick. We're not going to go too in-depth on any of these because you, you could have whole podcasts on some of these as we do on the Misdirected Mart Network. It, we, yeah. we in fact do. We in so, fact do. Yeah. So we'll start with the Forgotten Realms because that is probably the most popular, the most enduring setting um, over the 40 plus years of D&D. Uh, created by Ed Greenwood, um, this was and is driven both by game products and by supporting accessories like novels and comics. Now, I've talked with Ed quite a bit. I've been on panels with Ed, and I don't throw praise around much. I don't like to, you know, to get all hyperbolic about praise. But Ed is a true creative genius. There is no doubt. Um, just the amount and the depth of detail in his campaigns and how it all works together is nothing short of phenomenal. Uh, so that in itself makes this setting uh, special, but it's also an interesting study in the interaction between a game setting for playing a role-playing game and a story setting for coming up with other bits of literature or comics or what have you that um, have to go hand in hand with each other as the setting progresses. Mm -hmm. You want to add anything about the realms there, Chris? No, I mean, we talked yeah. a bunch about it already. So uh, you want to talk about the next setting? Well, sure. I mean, it's Greyhawk and Blackmore. They're the first D&D settings from uh, Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson. It's the kind of the basis for everything that we did from that point on, whether it was to emulate or react to what D&D was. Yep. I would call Greyhawk the kind of the base setting, the vanilla setting. And, you know, everything else is how does it compare to that? Is it higher magic or lower magic? You know, is it... Is it more civilized or less civilized? All of that seems to be uh, uh, based on that initial Greyhawk Blackmore setting. Now, just uh, one, one quick note. Blackmore was actually the first setting that was played, but it wasn't published until after Greyhawk had already been published. So Dave Arneson was the creator of that Blackmore setting, and that it later split off in uh, third edition days into its own product from a company that was co-founded by by dave i believe dave arneson um but it, historically speaking they they're uh, put together greyhawk and blackmore so the next one is eberron which was the winner of the that crazy 2003 setting search where thousands of people tens of thousands of, like i think ten thousand entries were sent in maybe more than that maybe yeah. a hundred thousand i can't remember it was a lot yeah i just know it was a lot and keith baker was the one who won that um and then it was designed by Keith Baker and James Wyatt with third edition in mind. And I mean, I love, who doesn't love Eberron? It's basically taking the ideas of pulp and noir, you know, your Indiana Jones is your, is, is kind of like your reference point for that. And then throw a bunch of magic in it Yep. and then uh, go to town. There you go. Yeah. It's, it's easily my favorite setting to design games and adventures in because there is so much unique about it that you can really switch gears, but still, always be in the same world mm -hmm. um so the next one is dark sun mm -hmm. so dark sun is post-apocalyptic dnd i mean that's pretty much what it is it was a uh, made in 1991 it mm -hmm. just took everything that you thought was dnd and flipped it right. like that was the whole point of it i think uh to to counter the the tropes that we were comfortable with right uh you know divine magic nope 
Arcane magic, well, yeah, you can use it, but it destroys everything around you. Uh-huh. Um, psionics, yes, that's what we're going to use to be all mystical in our game. Halflings, yeah, they they eat people. They're gonna eat. They're um, gonna eat you, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, a you know, like you said, post-apocalyptic, very grim, very deadly. Lots of strange creatures. Uh, you know, slavery, the arena. You know. All the that dark, gritty, survivalistic uh, paradigm was stuffed into Dark Sun. When it came out, it was loved by by many and hated by many, and there was almost no in between. There, you either loved it or you hated it. Mm-hmm. Uh, next, Planescape. So, Planescape was. D&D's attempt to take a look at the multiverse and how it actually existed and how you could play a campaign that actually was just in the multiverse, starting with Sigil and working your way out. Yeah. What I remember about Planescape was this was something that a lot of campaigns did. A lot of campaigns jumped planes and went all over the place. What Planescape did was really give it some form and give you some rules on how best to tell a story within that, um, you know, within that paradigm i'm gonna say paradigm a lot today and 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 they did it really well you know the sigil is a great place it's a great city it's a great setting in and of itself for running fun games Uh, i think my favorite description i've heard of it was um it's uh philosophers with clubs Mm -hmm. our our own darcy darcy ross has mentioned that i think i'm not sure if she coined it or if she uh took it from somebody else but i've heard her say that before yeah i can see that Uh, next up we have Dragonlance. Dragonlance. Yeah. yeah. You go ahead. So Dra- Dragonlance is a weird setting in the sense that it really the novels were much more popular than the actual game setting, which was just the opposite of everything that had come before. I would say for, for the Gotten Realms, they were equal. Uh, Greyhawk, they did have some novels, but for the most part, most people were f- most familiar with the setting uh, for the, the D&D setting. With Dragonlance, I think the opposite was true. I think the books vastly outsold any sort of gameplay within uh, Kryn that went on. So, you know, in that sense, it was not a horribly different campaign setting than Forgotten Realms of Greyhawk. There obviously were a few changes. For the most part, the feel was there. Um, But it was just, uh, you know, uh, Hickman and Weiss did an incredible job capturing people's imagination with those books. And uh, the, the, the setting for D and D was kind of dragged along behind. You know, I was thought that was, that I was, I think that's an interesting description that you just gave because I always felt that Greyhawk and Blackmore strafed way closer to the sword and sorcery, the Conan style of play. Whereas Dragonlance felt like the Lord of the Rings. A bit. Yeah. A bit. I, I think Greyhawk had a little bit of that, feel although it might not have been highlighted in every single area uh because greyhawk you know had a big war with i use the evil versus the rest of the world um Mm. so you know there was that element of it it may not have been highlighted as much with dragonlance since it was a a novel series first and foremost i think you get that feel just like you know the there are D D versions of Lord of the Rings, as as you talked about a couple of weeks ago, mm-hmm. but uh, 
And I think it has maybe more to do with the novelistic um, precursor to it that, than anything. But, you know, I can definitely see that slant of Dragonlance um, calling out to people a little bit more. Yeah, do you know uh, the actual reason why I feel that way is because the um, the Dragonlance modules that came out were like a they were a, 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 an adventure path basically to follow along with the novels. Yep. Whereas like the 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 always the main thrust of play because I didn't play or exist in that space when you were doing um, Living Greyhawk like you folks were doing mm-hmm. the the main thrust of what Greyhawk always was to me was Castle Greyhawk, which was we're going to be a bunch of rogues and adventurers going into a castle to find loot and try to right. survive. Yeah, that, that's kind of why I have that feel between those two different mm-hmm. ones. But I mean, I, I get how it's not because I, I never even thought about the whole I use because that is very much the uh, the basically the shadow trying to destroy the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, next one. Uh, we'll run through a couple of these real quick. Spelljammer. It's basically D&D in space. It's a space opera version of D&D using magic instead mm-hmm. of technology. Yep. Next is Ravenloft. Uh we all know that that was a gothic horror setting. Uh, it used the original adventure by Tracy Hickman, then became its own setting. And then there was a spinoff of that called Mask of the Red Death, which was a similar gothic uh, setting, but it moved forward in time to the late 1800s. So there were was some more technology involved, a little bit more Cthulian, let's say, uh, or Lovecraftian uh, in, in nature, I think. Yeah, because I mean that sort of mask of the red death is almost a play on um, the king in yellow in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, not to mention Poe. Yeah, that too, absolutely. Uh, birthright. Yeah. So this was a setting where you were actually playing leaders and nobles in positions of power, and you were basically running a uh, a political intrigue game with armies and wars and whatnot. Yep. It was a lot more about long term planning of your domain rather than you know, getting dirty down in a dungeon, but still cool for those who enjoyed that sort of game. Uh, next is Mistara, which was a setting that evolved as the basic set material. You know, the expert, uh, what's the, what's the acronym? Yeah, I know. Like, I just lost it. Yeah. There's a, there's an acronym that goes along with that, that yeah. Jason Hobbs would be able to rattle off. No problem for me. B E C M I. There we go. There it is. Basic expert and so on. Um, so yeah. So as those adventures were released, a setting evolved around them, and it was called Mistara. You may hear talk of the Hollow World or the Savage Coast. Both of those are also subsettings within Mistara. All right, last one, and then we'll, I want to talk a little bit about why we decided to go through all this stuff. Um, Karatur and Rokugan, so Oriental Adventures, essentially. So Karatur used to be the Oriental Adventures setting, and it was part of the Forgotten Realms. It still is part of the Forgotten Realms, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. At some point. Right around 2000, 2001, uh, Wizards of the Coast, when they were transitioning from second edition to third edition, they acquired the IP for Rokugan to do one thing, to make a uh, a D20 version of Oriental Adventures for 3.5 using Rokugan as the setting. And then they pretty much just gave the IP back to Alderac Entertainment, which then made a bunch of D20 books along with their roll and keep system for Rokugan to keep making, you know, Legends of the Five uh, Rings stuff. Uh, it's an interesting story. And, and now I think the reason, like it's, it's the Oriental adventures, the, the Eastern culture type stuff for, for a setting for D and D or for D 20, at least, I think it's interesting to talk about like 
we just went through a whole bunch of settings. They all have very different purposes, different reasons for being created, different ways that they got created. And that is, that's the thing about settings. Like they all have, they all have different high concepts. They all have different um, purposes. They all have different ways that characters kind of fit into them from small scale to very large scale. And, uh, and that's what we're going to get into when we talk about what makes a good setting. Did I miss anything, Sean? No, I think, you know, we needed to run through those just to have a touch point for talking about what we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Uh, mostly to show the diversity and how this stuff all works. All right. So what makes a good setting, Sean? Well, lots of things. I'll give my typical disclaimer first. What's a good setting for someone is a not a good setting for someone else. So we want to really talk about the concepts that you need to put in place rather than, oh, I really like low magic or I really like high magic. A good setting could be either. So we're going to talk about those those high level concepts that you need to make the setting good in general mm-hmm. without thinking about preferences. So the first thing is get a big picture for your setting, get a high level concept. Yeah. And as we were running down through all those settings from before, you know, we were kind of pointing out those high level concepts of each setting. Absolutely. In fact, we missed one when it came to Eberron because we were talking about the whole noir slash pulp feel with Indiana Jones, but um, magic is a very, very common thing in, in Eberron. Like it just exists everywhere. Maybe not high level magic, but all that low level magic is just persistent. And there's an industry that surrounds it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a very interesting concept that usually if you see a high magic setting, it's high magic to the point where everyone is super powerful. Mm-hmm. That wasn't the case with Eberron. Magic is, is all around you. But it is done in a way where not any single person has control of all of that. It's these Dragon Mark houses are running things. And so you can get on a lightning train. That's the, the magic is the setting. It's not within the characters. Mm-hmm. Also, because they're trying to angle at noir in some way, shape, or form, that means it's about who can you trust and who can you not trust. And it's a lot easier in a lot of ways to do that when you have organizations that you're dealing with, which Eberron is much more about organizations than individuals with personal power. Mm -hmm, For sure. So what's next? So once you get that big picture in place, you know, what, if you have to say five cool things about your setting that make them different from other settings. Oh, that's interesting. Or that really solidify them. You know, what are they? Once you get those, then you switch from the highest level concept all the way down to those details. How do you put the small details into your campaign based on those five or six high level concepts that you create? So what is everyday life like? If I walk into a tavern, what do I see? If I walk down the street of a city, what do I see? All of those smaller details are what you are going to then layer on top of each other as you create your individual adventures and adventure arcs. Yeah, I agree with, with all that. Like, um, I'm a pretty big fan. Like, I, I think I think the five things is a great thing to do. I'm always uh, the kind of person who will be like, well, I have my big picture, and now I have some small details. Now I'm going to start asking myself questions mm-hmm. and then answering those questions. So, like, I mean, usually my first question, and we kind of already did this, was like, what does the high concept mean to the world? Like, what does it mean that you want to have a world that is filled with magic all over the place that's not exactly um, super powerful, but everybody kind of has access to it? Uh, What does it mean if you want to have a noir and pulp setting? How do you create that? And we already did some of that. One of its 
some part of it's feel, but some part of it's like organizations will help you create situations where it's not about individuals, but about organizations who who are around and they, they can have different agendas within that organization. So it's about who can you trust and who can you not trust. And uh, of course, the action adventure part is then like, how do I create this these spaces where there is one part city and then one part exotic locations to go and explore for for strange things so then i have to start answering those questions mm -hmm. and in eberron we have zendrix we have seer which is the Mornland, mm -hmm. and we have even the lower levels of sharn if you want to go uh, dungeon delving into the the abandoned places of the city of towers yep and a high level concept that is brought down into small details in dark sun is there there are no deities you know the the gods or god has died so no, no clerics, no paladins, no healing magic in the sense that we understand it for regular campaigns. And the setting is a wasteland. So most of the population are concentrated into city-states. Okay, go. What does that mean? And then you start pulling out those details of, you know, caravans that have to be highly guarded. You kind of a Mad Max feel, mm -hmm. you know, as you're trying to get goods from one place to another, you have to have heavily guarded caravans going through, you know, desert or silt or what have you. I mean, if oppression's a big part of your setting, which it is in Dark Sun, then what does it mean? What does that mean in your setting? Which is like, well, we have these sorcerer kings, and then there was these purges that tried to, you know, eliminate races at times, and in fact, to the point where there aren't any gnomes. Right. Like gnomes are just dead; they've been all killed off. So, yep. Stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then you have to ask other questions like if if you have magic in your world, where what are the side effects? Um, mm -hmm. can any can anyone use it? How is it used? Where does it come from? How do the normal folks, the normal everyday citizens of your world view people that do have access to magic? What other questions do you think of, Chris? Oh uh I mean I mean that that's a really good list right there that for okay. for the magic side of things but like what is a what does a typical person in your setting do like how do they survive so you have a giant city mm -hmm. like what does that even mean like if your city is 50 miles wide by 30 miles wide like how do people exist in that city why don't people just move out and work farmlands yep. right like those are the kinds of things like how, do, how what does a day-to-day -day life for a person look like what do the um what are the odd things that people know about mm -hmm. but maybe not interact with all the time that might be interesting to the characters. Cause then eventually you'll we'll have to get to the characters, which we'll get to there in a second. Right. And when we say small details, we're not just talking about everyday life though. We're also talking about who are the power groups? Who is it that keeps people in line or are abusing the people to try to take more power? Yeah. Because those are going to be the, the people or creatures that the adventurers are going to be fighting along the way. Yeah. In Eberron, it's the dragon marked houses and it's also the hidden organizations. And it's also the, uh, mm -hmm. the governments that exist in Corvair. Yep. And if you want to grind down even farther than that, you can start getting into like, the, like the, the, the police force, the, mm -hmm. the Griffin riders, the whatever local organization is living in the city of towers that is, um, uh, working with Droam. So giving, trying to give monsters rights, monstrous races rights, things like that. Yep. You know, and, and so all of that will play into the details of your setting as you create it. Now, as you're doing all this, the third thing, so you have your overall concept, you have your details that are filling in what the player characters are going to interact with. Next, you want to make sure you leave some room in the setting for the characters. 
So when you're starting this campaign in your new setting, leave them room so they have room to maneuver as they start so they can be what they want to be. You have to be careful not to put them in a in, in a setting that's too restrictive because then they can't really do anything. You can't put them in a setting that's too far wide open because then they won't have a clear path of what they want to do. You know, I have a pretty good rule for um, a difference between what is a, a campaign for your for your group and what is a setting for your group to play in. Like, if you have a setting, then you can have multiple kinds of stories going on. Mm-hmm. For uh, for instance, in Eberron, like there's tons of stories that you can tell. Like, one of the most typical ones is like you are all veterans of the last war. And now you're trying to, now you're adventurers because that's what you were good at. Um, another one could be like, you all work for a dragon marked house and you do jobs for that dragon marked house that you're basically troubleshooters for them. Um, another one is you could be explorers that are discovering ancient artifacts and whatnot. Uh, another one could be that you are a group of warforged who are searching out um, warforged rights, but you, you you agree with neither the Lord of Blades nor the um, the other part of the establishment. Mm-hmm. Like you're somewhere in the, in the middle and looking for a new way. Like there's a lot of different kinds of stories that you can tell yep. in Eberron. Yep. And, and so th- that's a good rule and something I just considered was think of it this way. If the setting is so restrictive that every time you start a new campaign, it has to start the same way, then that's too restrictive. Except that's exactly what Ravenloft does. Kind of. Kind of. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll give you that. Um, I mean, Ravenloft is just about a survival horror for the most part. Like you were stuck usually in a domain or a demence mm-hmm. and you're trying to get back home. And then you're of course uncovering the, the, the story of whatever creature is the, the dark Lord of that domain. Right. Yep. So, I mean, okay. that's fine. Like you can yeah. play a mult, like there's nothing wrong with that. Like we see that in television all the time. That is basically your, uh, your criminal minds or your law and order, right? Like case of the week mm-hmm. episode of the week. I mean, this could be like campaign short campaign of the month. Right. What I'm saying is, say you you create a campaign that's like Dark Sun flavored in the sense that, you know, there are these sorcerer kings and then everyone else is kind of underneath them. If you mm-hmm. if you focus that to the point where every time you start a new campaign, you're starting with no equipment, poor dirt, you know, scrounging to survive, um, then that setting is too, is too, uh, restrictive. too restrictive. Yeah. You need to be able to at least give a little wiggle room to create some different campaigns within the setting. I think that, I think that yeah. that's what I meant. That's all. You know, I, I agree with you. I just I wanted to point out that there is an exception to that rule, sure. which is Ravenloft. And I, I think we'll actually talk about that later too. Um, when you talk about scope, um, mm-hmm. so the, the other so you're leaving room for them at the start, the, your characters at the start to to be what they want within the setting. You also want to leave room for them to grow as they gain power and wealth. Um, you don't want it to be too restrictive that they can never get break through whatever restrictions that the setting places on them. Yeah. So you want them to be able to, you know, become the leaders of this small city. You don't, you know, in the case of certain settings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, and then you also want to leave room for the big, large end game when they're twentieth level. Um, you know, what are the main goals of these characters at the very highest levels? Leave some room for the characters to change the setting because of the power that they've gained. 
Yeah. And uh, let's talk about a, if you don't mind, let's talk about a few examples of how that actually looks. So like the leaving room for them to grow as they gain power and wealth, like you have a very good model for that in D and D it's the tier system. Mm -hmm. Like it works really effectively. Uh, what that means as far as story beats go is like when you're in those, those first few levels, like you're dealing with the lower level operatives of these different organizations in Eberron. Um, when you move into the next tier up, like you're starting to see some of the in, infighting between these organizations and what some of their goals are. And you're taking a slightly larger role and starting to make some choices about where your characters fit into things. Mm -hmm. um, after that, really, you're dealing with some of the leaders and whatnot of these different organizations and making moves with them, uh, making dealings with them and, you know, going on adventures for them or even with them that will uh, advance their agendas in major ways. Mm -hmm. uh, like these start becoming world affecting plots. That's your tier three stuff. And then tier four, you start fighting and dealing with Things like you're, you're not dealing with the blood of Vol. You're dealing with Vol herself. Right. You're not dealing with um, House Decaneth. You're dealing with Merrick Decaneth himself and whatever he's got going on in his Frankenstein mm -hmm. ways. And you're not dealing with the minions of the Sorcerer Kings and Dark Sun. You are dealing with the actual Sorcerer Kings. Yep. Yes, exactly. I, mean, I tend to go with Eberron because I know it really. I know it pretty no, well. I, I like it's one of my understood. Yeah. Just throwing out there some you know some other settings. Absolutely. Uh, and not every campaign that you run in a setting has to go all the way to 20th levels. Like sometimes they end early. Like sometimes the beginning of tier three is a perfectly good place to end. Mm -hmm. In fact, a lot of Eberron games tend to end there. Yep. Like in that space um, because of scope, which we'll, we'll talk about in a second. Yep. Uh, one other th point I wanted to add about, you know, creating your setting is only add as much detail or realism as you need. Um, there's something called the law of diminishing returns in that the more work that you do, tends to be devalued the further along you get because you're going to use most of the work that you've done in that initial span of time. So that is, you know, one thing you don't have to, don't have to, you can, there's nothing wrong with it, but if you don't have an unlimited amount of time, don't do more work than you need to do. Also going back to that leaving room for the characters, because they are going to want to influence your setting so let them come up with some of those details rather than doing that work on your own. I also have a really good story for everyone from uh, Phil Vecchione. So he was running the superheroes game um, a bunch of years ago. And that's when he was prepping all the time. Like he would just prep for hours and he wrote up the setting that was like a 20 or 30 page document. But when he wrote it up, he basically closed so many loops about like tax laws and like insurance things and whatnot that it eventually became not fun to be a superhero. So when they start, sat down and tried to make characters, he realized the error that he made, like <laughs> because superheroes couldn't really do much like without causing all kinds of trouble. <laughs> and he's like, well, that's a good reason to not write so much setting. Yep. Very true. <laughs> yeah. It's the problem with being human beings. We all pattern match and whatnot. So we'll, we'll just st start closing off loops. So it's good to leave space to create, uh, in the future and to let your players create, like Sean said. Mm -hmm. And then there are a bunch of questions that you can ask yourself um, that you basically have to do every time you create a setting. The The first one is, since it's D&D, &D, how, how am I going to handle magic? Mm -hmm. Is it going to be high magic, low magic, no magic? Everybody has magic. Um, and to what extent will the magic be used? 
That's a good one. Another one is your scope. And we just kind of talked about this a little bit. Like, is, it, is your scope of your campaign setting going to be small or large? Like, Eberron's gigantic. It's just a huge scope. Mm-hmm. And you'll probably just eventually pick a small place to start with and whatnot. But, like, Ravenloft is a much smaller scope. Like, think about um, the Curse of Straw book. Like, Ravenloft is not a huge place. There's plenty of stuff going on there for your for characters to engage in. But it's not exactly a gigantic space. And it's it's really just there to tell one particular story. I mean, you can tell other stories in it because I did. Mm-hmm. I've told a story that wasn't about killing Strahd or dealing with Strahd. So you can do other things with that, but it's a very small setting, which there's an interesting thing to that too, Sean. Um, the smaller your setting, the smaller the scope of your setting, uh, the more detail you'll probably go into in, in certain specific locations. True. Whereas when you have a huge setting, you will probably leave some of that stuff much more vague. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's definitely the case when you get into the forgotten realms and you start looking at all the different nations and all the different areas and their different customs and their different money. And the same thing goes with Greyhawk. Um, then it's just that much more to, to ferret out as you play it or as you create campaigns within it. If you can start with the, a small scope, a small area, then you can go into much more detail. Um, figure out the important NPCs and and where they stand on issues and what their goals are and how they are going to interact with the, with the player characters. Which is interesting because then you sort of get to this point where you have settings within settings, Mm -hmm. like Sharn, the city of towers is a setting all of, all of its own. I mean, you can go outside of it and there's, there's spaces and places to go there, but the city of towers is plenty big enough to run entire campaigns in, and not just one, like multiple campaigns inside the city of towers. Absolutely. Uh, is there anything else? Um, I'm sure that there are more questions, but I would rather have the uh, people go to our G plus community and talk to us about when they create settings, what questions do they ask themselves? Absolutely. It's a, it's a good thing to do. And I mean, and in fact, uh, more of these questions will probably come up from your big and small picture type stuff, your big picture and your small questions mm-hmm. and small statements that you make about your setting. Yep. Well, that was really fun and really good. I mean, there is a whole bunch of topics that we could delve into really hard if we wanted to concerning setting. And if you think of any of those subtopics that you'd like us to talk about, come to our G plus community and let us know. Mm-hmm. Well, with that, uh, I would like to say thank you everyone so much for listening. And I'm going to do a few Patreon shout outs. Uh, Merrick Blackman, Rob Whitaker, John Smith, Craig, just Craig and Stephen Farrell. And speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Dalek D&D, you can click on a link to our Patreon page on the website, and for $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout-out. Or for $5 a month, you not only get a shout-out, but you also get our pre-production show notes, and we try to give patrons extras. And I was wrong about that. It's not $5 anymore. I need to rewrite the copy. It's actually four fifty because I'm trying to bring the prices in closer in line with what um, – so they're more equal across the network. What a deal. I know, right? Wow. If you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review. Those reviews help us, even if you're not listening on Apple Podcasts, because other podcatchers use Apple Podcasts as their way to rate and rank shows. So if you could give us some reviews, especially those five-star reviews, it makes us more visible and helps us spread the gospel of D&D. Oh, yeah. So, Sean, where can we find you on the internet? Uh, You can find me at Sean Merwin on Twitter. I am on Facebook as Sean Merwin, not surprisingly. Mm-hmm. But the best place is on the Down With D&D G Plus community. How about you, Chris? You can catch me at Down With D&D on Twitter or at Misdirected Mark on Twitter. Or, you know, go to the website where you can leave a comment. I'm also in the G Plus community. You, If you go to the website where you want to leave a comment, you can also catch other great shows such as this one. 
Hobbs and Friends of the OSR. Hobbs gets together with various friends from the OSR where they talk about games they play, a little about themselves, some OSR-related topics, and sometimes the state of the OSR where Hobbs puts down his Mr. Rogers persona and gets all opinionated. Get old school with Hobbs and Friends of the OSR. Down with D&D is a misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. Mm-hmm. So, Sean, buddy, old pal, what are we going to do now? We're going to go kill some setting-specific monsters. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? This whole party. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D?